And uh, Dennis Stewart, welcome to our small studio. Uh, we've all fitted in nice and cosy. So, <laughs> mate, welcome back for another Health Naturally. Well, thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to be here, mate. Always good to, to, to share a session with you. Yeah, it's, it's funny. The stuff that you don't get to hear, we've just spent 20 minutes talking about politics and world affairs. So uh, we'll, we'll try and save that for another day. But, Dennis, the last few weeks... You've been sharing a lot about some of these uh, really cool herbs such as chamomile and lemon balm. Today, the recognised importance of peppermints. And I look, I think we, we need to touch on peppermint because in the scheme of things, it probably is one of the most underrated and unappreciated of all the European medicinal herbs. It has a track record of being used in medicine like few other herbs, and it has a role to play, I would argue, even in the practice of modern medicine, to address certain specific gut problems, which we'll talk about. Dennis, I know you're excited ready to talk about peppermint, but can you maybe uh, put that on the ball for a couple of minutes for us? Anything for you, Mark. (laughs) All right. Good afternoon, Gay at Carter. Vertigo is on your mind, Gay. Yes, it is. Yes, I've um, uh, had vertigo for quite some time Mm -hmm. now, and my doctor keeps saying it will pass, it will pass, Mm. and she's given me Stamatil. Yes, um, but nighttime is the worst when I put my head on the pillow. Okay. Look, y- your doctor may well be right. Um, one presumes that you've had it adequately medically investigated because vertigo can be associated with a number of underlying conditions, but your doctor, I'm sure, would have looked at that and may well be right in what she's saying. However, uh, over the years, I have given advice to many listeners and many of my patients who consult me that have had vertigo and in many instances they've benefited by the recommendations that I've given. I've always uh, said that the pretty well unknown European herb, particularly well known by British herbalists, that is British herbalists of my generation, most of whom are dead, the herb, the herb wood betony. Off to a great start, Dennis. <laughs> a great start. The herb wood betony, B-E-T-O-N-Y, botanically known simply as botonica. Now, it is a herb that was made famous by the English camp of herbalists, uh, particularly by a northern English herbalist called William Smith, mm-hmm. who, who wrote a remarkable book that uh, I recommend to listeners. It's still available. You'd probably have to contact Amazon called Wonders in Weeds. What a lovely name, Wonders in Weeds. That was a book written by William Smith in which he spoke glowingly about the potential of the herb woodbetony to address this particular condition. And then I noticed also in the British Herbal Pharmacopoeia, which is the Bible of modern uh, Western herbal medicine, uh, the herb botonica or woodbetony is called up in the monograph of that herb as having an indication also for vertigo. So I have recommended that as a a very safe, uh, a very economical herb to try in the correct dosage. And here and there, patients and and listeners have got benefit from it. So that's the first thing I would recommend. The second thing I would recommend is that if you are not on blood thinners, uh, the herb ginkgo biloba is, is a good herb to try. Ginkgo is a herb that is uh, famously used, particularly again, mainly in Europe, although I had a lot to do in introducing it to Australia and giving the first lectures on it at a Blackmore seminar many, many, many years ago. And it's one of the most remarkable 
uh, herbs for its abilities in multiple levels, but one of the indications is that uh, vertigo sometimes responds to uh, to the uh, chronic usage of the herb ginkgo biloba. So mm-hmm. if I were in your situation, whilst I respect everything that your good doctor would have said, mm-hmm. I think that I'd be going down the pathway of using some wood betony, try it on its own perhaps for a couple of months, um, see how you go. If you do well on it, there is no need to contemplate going on to ginkgo, although I recommend uh, people, um, particularly my age, which is 105, uh, to, <laughs> to, to go on to ginkgo and never get off it. You might last to 106. Uh, you've got the uh, decimal point in the wrong place, Dennis. It's not 105. <laughs> so, now, when the, would I be able to purchase it? Okay, you? look, you, you always try your local compounding pharmacist, but mm-hmm. if you're not able to get it from there, you can get it from my rooms in New Lambton. All right, uh, Gay, best of luck with, with all of that. Hope you do so, so well. Good afternoon. Cleo at St Ilba Bay. You have a question for Dennis today, Cleo. Uh, yes, I do. Hello, Cleo. Hello, how are you today, Dennis? I'm, I'm very well indeed. Good. I just have a bit of an inquiry, if you yes. can help me, yes. in regards to fenugreek oil, please. Fenugreek oil. For lung health. For, for lung health. Mm-hmm. Okay, look, uh, fenugreek um, is what you might refer to as a, an aromatic herb. It's got a, a particular uh, smell or scent about it, uh, which is highly regarded and highly appreciated, particularly in uh, Middle Eastern countries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I could talk very significantly about my usage of fenugreek in many, many forms. Now, whether it is used as an oil or whether it is used as an extract or whether it is used as part of one's diet, the reality of it is any form that you would use of it would convey uh, a a significant amount of what we call the active chemistry of the herb. Now, um, if you want to make um, an oil of it yourself, uh, that would be making what's called an infused oil Mm-hmm. Uh, and th- th- this is a very um, common way um, that um, uh, herbs are used, and that basically means infusing or soaking the the the, her- the herb uh, mm-hmm. in oil, usually olive oil. I've always used olive oil for manufacturing my infused uh, herbs, and usually you try to work around. I work around the proportion of one part of the herb to five parts of the of the solvent or the menstruum or the oil. So if you were working, say, in, in kilo quantities, uh, you'd use, uh, you, obviously you wouldn't, you'd want to be much uh, smaller amounts than that, but you would use a kilo of the, of the herb and you would macerate it, as we say in uh, herbal pharmacy, you would macerate it, which means soaking it in about five litres of the oil, preferably... Uh, the oil should be, or the preparation should be left in a warm spot. Traditional herbalists used to uh, uh, put the uh, preparation in a uh, an open mouth, a big wide mouth jar, and uh, and let it just stand in the sun for a couple of a couple of days, maybe one or two weeks, during which time the chemistry of the herb is given up to the oil, and the oil then is filtered off from the. Uh, herb. The herb then has been wasted as far as its actives are concerned. You get you uh, get rid of the, uh, the what's left over. We call that the mark, the M A R C, and the the herb is strained or the liquid is strained, and you have what I would call the infused oil of uh, of fenugreek. 
but but I would then ask you, uh, why um, are you wanting to use the the oil of fenugreek when you can use it in other forms? Um, well, I've been approached by a, by a health company in regards to this, and I thought, well, um, I'd just like to uh, you'd be one to help me follow up, bit, just a bit more information with it. Okay. Um, well, I'm, I'm presuming that you are fully aware of the of the benefits of fenugreek and why it is so uh, popularly used, particularly uh, amongst people uh, coming from Middle Eastern countries. I'll tell you a little story which will indicate uh, why I'm so uh, keen on this herb and prescribe it regularly. In Melbourne, probably oh, 20 years ago, I was um, finalising a series of lectures on a postgraduate program that I was teaching there. And during the, the year's program, I used to fly down once, uh, once a month and, and lecture for a day. Uh, at the end of the course, one student who was uh, a Lebanese gastroenterologist who attended all the lectures with great enthusiasm, he took me out for dinner on the last night uh, to a, a Middle Eastern restaurant. We had a lovely time together. And at the end of it, he presented me with, with a book and it was called Medicine of the Prophet. And essentially what it was, was a book dealing with those herbs which uh, were famously used by Muhammad and have subsequently been used by the, uh, particularly the Islamic community uh, and uh, presumably also now by the community generally. And in that book, um, fenugreek was uh, extolled and it was said that of all the herbs, uh, I think I'm right in saying this, that of all the herbs, uh, the prophet regarded fenugreek as the most important. And it's most important because um, the herb is used in uh, medicine, uh, particularly to address female reproductive problems. It is a herb that I have great confidence in recommending to women who suffer from what's called functional infertility. It is a great herb also, paradoxically, uh, for using for uh, congestive conditions associated with the respiratory system, the upper respiratory tract particularly in its state of congestion, its regular levels of infection and its mucousy state is confidently uh, helped by an ongoing usage of fenugreek in almost any form. The list goes on. Um, so I'm pleased that you're doing some work with fenugreek and I recommend to all listeners, uh, look at the possibility of this remarkable herb, fall in love with it, and particularly for women uh, who are having difficulty, and many women have difficulty in conceiving, and yet on investigation, uh, nothing can be found to, to justify why that is not happening, and we call that functional infertility. In those situations, I would highly recommend that uh, women uh, go onto a course of using fenugreek, which is more of a food uh, than, than, a, than a medicine. It's, if you like, a medicinal food uh, with remarkable possibilities. Good afternoon, Carol. Adora Click, they've had you hanging along for a bit there, Carol, so thanks okay. for your patience. Uh, we're getting up into the eyeballs today. Yes, uh, macular degeneration. Uh, my son has just been diagnosed with that mm -hmm. from an eye test. Yes. Now he's waiting for a specialist. Yes, good. And I was wondering if you could, um, you know, if there was something that he yes. could take that would help his eyes. Okay. Look, um, there is a book written by um, two um, well-known American 
uh, naturopathic practitioners and academics, Pizzorno and Murray. It is called the Encyclopedia of Natural Health. It's gone through a number of editions and I have used it as a, a textbook to lecture from for most of my lecturing career and I've always uh, been guided by their recommendations. The reason I uh, say that is that in that book they have a very good section dealing with the potential of a couple of uh, herbal supplements that may be useful in addressing macular degeneration depending upon its classification and depending upon uh, its development or its, its condition at, at the stage of treatment. The two herbs are ones that I frequently mention on the program and one that I've mentioned today. I've mentioned the herb ginkgo biloba. Okay. Now, yeah. um, ginkgo I always mention as a herb that needs to be with a little bit of knowledge it may not be the best herb in the world for people that are on blood thinners. Uh, or, beg your pardon? He's not on blood thinners. Okay. Uh, the, uh, let me just say again there for listeners uh, who, who might sort of raise their eyebrows at that, uh, there is ongoing debate as to whether or not uh, this is so. Uh, some of the modern literature on ginkgo questions this adverse reaction but I always err on the safe side and say that uh, the people that are on uh, blood thinners before they start using it should discuss it with their, their doctor or pharmacist. I have never had any problems with patients that have been taking it um, and so I recommend that as a starting base. Again using the reference from Pizzorno and Murray's text the Encyclopedia of Natural Medicine but the second one uh, which is even, again, um, with a considerable reputation, is the herb bilberry. But, again here, when we're talking about the herb bilberry and talking about its specificity as a, a supplement to use uh, to address the condition, um, and by the way, we're not making any claims for cure, we're talking about potential benefits, but bilberry... Uh, needs to be what's called a standardised preparation. Now, that might be a little bit confusing for you, but um, what it basically means in the preparation of uh, medicines today in tableted form that we use, and I use them frequently, the herb comes with what's called a standardised or guaranteed level of active chemistry. Now, let me explain that a little bit further. Um, all herbs, or what we say, the, the, most herbs have a recognised active chemistry, a substance in them that explains some of their benefits. In bilberry, it is a group of substances known as anthocyanidins, anthocyanidins, no need for you to write it down, but they need to be present in about 24%. So you'll find that the, uh, many of the medicinal preparations of bilberry are standardised around 24% of anthocyanidins and the dosage correspondingly is related to that concentration of the active. Now that's not to say that uh, other preparations of bilberry uh, are not, not going to work, it's just that the industry um, that, that I have a lot to do with uh, have developed products that are concentrated bilberry products and a, a, a concentrated round a particular active chemistry. 
I would see those two uh, preparations being most useful. And what I offer to do for you, if you were to contact my rooms at New Lambton, ring up, um, uh, we can organise for a copy of the article from Pizzorno and Murray to be sent to you for your, for your son, free of charge. And it might be a little bit technical, but you'll get the gist of it. So I leave that up to you, but they're the two herbs, keeping in mind that good, Australia, good Australian companies um, make preparations with other constituents. Uh, Blackmore's has a product called MacuVision, which is an excellent product. Many other companies also have uh, re good, reputable products containing constituents, sometimes different to my emphasis on the ginkgo and the bilberry, but I stand by those two, and I pretty well work around those. Danisot, we've got a couple of moments here. So peppermint was the herb that you wanted to bring to us mm. today. Mm. What is it about this particular herb that you find so special, if not indeed remarkable? Well, the first thing to pr appreciate is that peppermint has up until recently been used very frequently in mainstream Western medicine. I did my searching again this morning in some of my textbooks and sure enough, in a lot of the British pharmacopoeias, the codexes, various preparations of peppermint have been called up for medicinal application. We seem to have lost touch with some of these older uh, remedies that had profound effects in dealing with, in the case of peppermint, gastrointestinal problems. Now, peppermint is a herb that relieves abdominal bloating. It is a herb that relieves colic. And it is a herb that has remarkable properties. And this has been largely forgotten, and it shouldn't be forgotten. It has remarkable properties as an anti-nauseant. Now, that would be pretty handy. Yeah, now, you say, what is an anti-nauseant? Well, an anti-nauseant is a medicinal substance, in this case, the herb peppermint, which is used to lessen the tendency uh, to, to want to vomit. We become nauseous at times, uh, and many illnesses uh, of various categories are categorised by nausea, a feeling of being unwell, a feeling of wanting to vomit, and sometimes it does climax in vomiting. People, for instance, that are under various uh, medical treatments uh, and using particular drugs can experience various levels of nausea that makes them feel really unwell. The herb peppermint has a documented and reliable tradition associated with its anti-nauseous characteristics. And of course, being a herb, it is remarkably safe. Remarkably safe. And no one is saying, by the way, that it is the answer to all levels of nausea. What I am saying is that it has a reputation that's spread across the board to deal with conditions characterised by nausea, even things like, for instance, the nausea associated with morning sickness can be helped by the use of peppermint tea, a simple preparation of peppermint tea. Now, remember, peppermint comes at the end of our discussion on European medicinal herbs. We've dealt with chamomile, we've dealt with lemon balm, and now we're dealing with peppermint. And in the European tradition, peppermint and those other herbs was predominant they were predominantly prescribed as simple herbal teas or infusions 
Now, a, a lot of my camp, the naturopathic camp, the medical camp, would raise their eyebrows because this is not sophisticated enough. Herbal Sometimes medicine, things don't have to be that, do exactly they? Exactly right. And this is why in, in European medicine there is no, um, no problems about recommending the use of chamomile tea for inflammatory gut conditions. There's no uh, problem in recommending lemon balm for um, uh, neurotic conditions, uh, gastrointestinal distress, uh, nervous dyspepsia. And there's no problem in the recommendation of using peppermint tea. And there's actually a preparation in the pharmacopoeia called peppermint water, which older uh, nursing sisters used to use to give to patients subsequent to medical procedures, surgical procedures, when a byproduct of it was that the abdomen would become very bloated and, 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 and flatulence was there, patients were uncomfortable. Some of the older nursing sisters, and I witnessed this, and my wife wouldn't mind me saying this, but 40-odd years ago she had a medical procedure, which was successful, um, but uh, she laboured under a, a very bad case of abdominal bloating, which, considered, which was uh, characterised by a lot of colic and a lot of discomfort. The whole situation dissipated when an elderly nursing sister, God bless them, where are they today? An older nursing sister, fully aware of some of the common remedies, the simple remedies, came and said, here, Mrs Stewart, try some of this peppermint water. The ward exploded. <laughs> I won't elaborate. But it resolved <laughs> the problem. That. Now, that is an example... Mm of where peppermint can function, can lessen abdominal bloating, can address nauseous conditions as a, an alternative to using stronger anti-nauseants, pleasant to take, very, very simple. But the other thing about peppermint is that it is one of the most significant remedies for addressing liver and gallbladder problems. If you have uh, a gallbladder problem that is not necessarily characterised by gallstones, but where uh, very frequently uh, a gallbladder colic will occur, very frequently the use of peppermint tea can resolve that problem. And I recommend it to people who may not uh, be suitable for a procedure, who are considered not to require uh, a, a gallbladder procedure, try the simple use of peppermint tea as a reliever of gallbladder colic and it has an effect on the liver and gallbladder that we refer to as promoting drainage. Now what does that mean? It means that in a sluggish... I think you told us before. <laughs> in a sluggish liver and gallbladder condition what, uh, what uh, peppermint does is promote drainage, a better flow mm. of bile from the system. All right. Uh, recommended at any time except before you're about to head into that big meeting uh, for the year of promotion <laughs> down at the office. Dennis, you're not suggesting we've all become too sophisticated for our own good, though. I think we have come. Maybe. I think we have come. All right, let's get into some more calls here. G'day, Pauline at Quarrabalong. Um, anything to assist with bone density is your inquiry today, Pauline. Yeah, that's correct. Um yeah, I was just interested to hear what Dennis had to say about some bone density. Have you been? Uh, you, you've had an assessment of your bone density, have you? Yes, I have. And how did it look? Um, well, they're telling me um, I need some medication for it. Yes. But um, 
I'm not prepared to sort of go down that line yet, thinking that I can improve it, maybe with some herbs and diet and exercise. Well, certainly I would concur that a good diet, um, strong in calcium and bone-strengthening exercises have a big part to play in helping manage this condition. But I would come back to the point, was your osteoporotic condition uh, advanced or how would how did your uh, no, doctor it, relate to it? It's not advanced and I haven't actually got the results here in front of me, but okay. um, it's probably a mild case. Okay. Look, uh, I could talk very significantly on this for the rest of the program, but, but I won't. Um, what I would again say is that I follow a, I follow a procedure that is very well presented in Pizzorno and Murray's text, the Encyclopedia of Natural Health. And I have a number of patients, one lady in particular at Warunga, who is doing very well on that program. And I'm not saying that this is an alternative to the uh, therapy that you're uh, being offered. And I know the therapy that you've been offered. I'm not saying it's an alternative to that. I'm saying that people that have reservations about the treatment for osteoporosis involving uh, the drug you're, uh, you're talking about, uh, they choose to use that protocol, which is high in the use of particular vitamins, particularly vitamin K. So, look, again, I say to you, if you're interested, contact the rooms. We'll sell out. We send out to you the protocol. You can have a look at it. You can discuss it with your doctor. It's something that is uh, capable of being initiated yourself and in the context of being an early state, probably of osteopenia and not osteoporosis, it might be worthwhile giving um, the program a go. Good supplements, weight-bearing exercises, uh, good levels of calcium uh, and working with your doctor to see if that reflects itself in, in a better profile in the future. Dennis, uh, all of a sudden uh, you've brought peppermint into the conversation mm. and that uh, seems to be where we will go to wrap up today. G'day, Amanda at Bulga. You have a peppermint question for your eight-month-old. Uh, hello, I do. My eight-month-old grandson, actually, um, he seems to be constantly suffering with windy, colic-type pain yes. through the evening. Yes. Um, my daughter is changing formulas constantly and yes. I heard the, the peppermint story with the colic. I wonder, A... Can a baby have peppermint, and if so, how? Okay. Look, peppermint may be a little bit strong for a baby, but the most famous uh, herb that has been used to address uh, uh, colic in babies is the herb dill, D-I-L-L. And there is a preparation. There is a preparation in, in the older editions of the Australian pharmaceutical formulary that has the method of making what's called dill water. Now... Many, um, many pharmacists uh, should be able to make that. A compounding pharmacist, I would think, would be able to make dill water um, pretty confidently. And it is uh, highly regarded. It was the standard treatment uh, for kids' colic. Uh, why it went out of fashion, I'm not sure. But dill water is the name of the preparation based on the herb dill, um, a gentle remedy more gentler than uh, than peppermint, I would go to your pharmacist. You'd have a pharmacist in Singleton or Musselbrook, would you? Yes. Okay. Yes, I, I do. I'm sure they would uh, be able to, if not make it themselves, tell you where you could get it. 
Um, I, I, I can't mention names, but there is a pharmacy in Mayfield that uh, I think right. manufactures a preparation that was made famous by a local um, uh, pharmacist, who I think is either retired or passed on, well-known pharmacist in Newcastle, uh, that uh, was a preparation that was used for kids' colic. Um, if, uh, if you have no luck in Singleton or Musselbrook, and I'm sure you will, um, ring my rooms and I'll be at liberty then to let you know the pharmacy to go to. All right, best of luck, Amanda. Either that or we're on the Putty Road, Dennis. It's a trip down to Windsor. Well, that's true. It's <laughs> a long trip. It's a long trip. All right, thanks everyone that called in today. There's a couple we did not get to. Um, short yes or no answer on this one, Dennis. Can Pepman help with testosterone? No. All right, there we go. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this podcast from 2NURFM at the University of Newcastle. Topics range from gardening to health, well-being, pet care, finance, business and travel. You'll find them all at 2NURFM.com.